this week and next week should finish up chapter six, and then we're going to go on hiatus for a little bit and uh, uh, maybe come back after the new year and start on chapter seven because it's not something that can be. Chapter seven's a tough one, uh, almost as tough as six. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Okay, so, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So what we have in these two verses are Paul's reasons to support the command that he has just given us that we went over last week uh, in the 19th verse. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we have that command to present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And what he's given us um, is the reasons why we should do that. Okay, uh, Which followed necessarily the statement of our position uh, found in verse 18. So the entire thing could be stated thusly. It says, you as Christians have been set free from sin and have been enslaved to righteousness because this is now your position. The only acceptable response is to now present all that you have and all that you are in service to righteousness. And the more effort you put into this, the more swift and sure will your sanctification be. And then he goes on to give us these two verses that show what, show us why it is only logical, why it only makes sense, why obedience to, the, to his command is our only reasonable response. Because, again, as we've stated before, holiness and sanctification are always the result of a process of reasoning um, or um, weighing the two sides, as it were. Uh, as we see throughout the New Testament. So Paul does not just stop at a mere command. He gives us some doctrine as to why this command exists. He gives us the explanation for why this command exists. You remember when Mama used to say, because I said so? Well, see, Paul don't do that. He, he, he always gives us, he always gives us the why, and that's uh, included with the command. So now as we look at verses uh, 20 and 21, we are being shown the truth uh, regarding non-Christians. So he's addressing these Roman Christians, but he's re uh, talking about the life that they had before they became Christians. We're being shown what a life of sin looks like, and we're also being shown its final end. Uh, and again, we're still answering that accusation brought up in verse 15, which is a repeat of verse 1. Uh, is it really possible that anyone with any sense would say, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? For anyone who truly and honestly acknowledges what he was and remembers the kind of life he lived while he was still under the law and before he came to be under grace... Uh, for any of those who understand that, it is an ignorant and monstrous suggestion that we would even think about continuing in sin so that grace might abound. <clears throat> Anyone who can willfully sin, using grace as an excuse, and this is all throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Anyone who can willfully sin using grace as an excuse is a person who has never been saved to begin with. Okay? Simple as that. They are still a slave of sin, as Paul has told us over and over, as we've stated numerous times. The absolute truth about any man who is not a Christian is that that man is a slave of sin. Uh, Paul stated this over and over, going all the way back to chapter 5. He says, sin has reigned unto death. It is the sad story of all men who are not Christians. 
They don't realize it. Wouldn't care if they did realize it. But that doesn't change the fact that they are enslaved to sin. But Paul gives us here a little more information as per his usual habit. He says that non-Christians were also not only enslaved to sin, he says they were free from righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean, free from righteousness? Well, some say that it means absolute freedom, no restraints, absolute free agency to do whatever they liked. Uh, Nope, none of that. Others say that it's absolute degeneracy, totally bad. Nope, not talking about that either. The free that is being used here is the same free that is being used when it says being free from sin. Okay? We're still using the analogy of slavery. Remember in verse 16 he says that you are slaves to whomever you obey. What this clearly means is that when you were slaves of sin, you were not slaves of righteousness. Again, it's a statement of position. To be free from righteousness means precisely that. Okay, uh, You were not governed or controlled or ruled by righteousness. Why not? Because you were being directed and controlled and dominated by sin. You can only have one master. You can't have two. So it's just a restatement of the fact that we are always slaves. Every man is a slave. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness. And you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. So when you were slaves of sin, you were quite free from the governing power uh, which righteousness exercises over certain people, over those who have been born again. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So this statement kind of puts an end to the discussion of morality apart from Jesus Christ, righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. This is a universal statement describing everyone who is not a Christian, no matter how good or how moral they might appear to be on the surface. Everyone who does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says here that those people are all free from righteousness. They don't have any. Now, this statement troubles many people because we all have that grandma or that uncle or that distant cousin or even a co-worker that were, people, they're just all around good people. You know what I'm talking about? Sure, there are men who are good moral men. Some unbelievers have done excellent things, but those things were not righteous things, okay? Paul is here uh, offering a differentiation between Christianity on the one hand and morality on the other hand. And this differentiation is as important in our current age as it has ever been because the greatest enemies of the Christian truth today are the so-called good, moral, ethical, religious people who are not Christians. Those who believe in the ethics of Christianity but not the doctrines of Christianity. These are the greatest enemies of Christianity and should be exposed as such. Any person who rejects Christ and him crucified, any person who does not believe in the atonement and its absolute necessity is the most dangerous of all unbelievers and needs to be denounced, just like Jesus denounced the Pharisees. Uh, The differentiation is that the non-Christian has no relationship at all to righteousness. Not men's definition of justice and righteousness, but to what the Bible means by righteousness. Non-Christian is not governed by righteousness. He's not controlled by righteousness. What controls him is himself. His own ideas, his own thoughts, his own philosophy. He is ultimately controlled by sin and Satan. And so the point that Paul is making here is that a Christian is a man who is governed and controlled and dominated by righteousness. Um, <clears throat> Paul clarifies this as he gives a, us a fitting description of the Jews of his day and the majority of what calls itself the church in America today. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 1, through, 1, 2, and 3. I'll give you a second to turn there if you want to. 
Romans 10, 1 through 3. So this is a description, Paul's description of the Jews of his day, as well as a description of most of what calls itself the church in America today. Okay? He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, okay, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Forget that. Being ignorant of actual righteousness, the actual righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Okay? They did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, what better definition, for those of you that follow such things, what better definition could we have of late, of every general assembly, every convention, of every denomination, year after year after year, as the liberals who have a zeal for God, a zeal for the God of their own imaginings, I will say, as they attempt to establish their own righteousness simply because they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. The righteousness that they were establishing is their own. It is not God's righteousness. So, it says, For when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness, no matter how good or how moral one might appear to be. Paul is very clear that all of our righteousness, as it were, is as filthy rags. We have none of our own. These people who are ignorant of the righteousness of God, this is the value, the total sum value of their moral deeds. Filthy rags. Filthy rags is the phrase that is used by the Bible to describe what you and I in our ignorance might describe as fine people. Those good, outstanding, fine people. What a fine man he is. Give you the shirt off of his back. Delightful to speak to. Fair-minded as all get out. Y'all know people like that, right? What does the Bible call people like that? Filthy rags, all right? Such is the definition of the man who claims the ethic but has no desire for the doctrine. We call him a fine man. God calls him a minstrel cloth, too vile for words. Such men have no true righteousness at all. So Paul describes himself along these lines in his epistle to the Philippians. Remember he said that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Y'all remember that part? Without blame at all, without blame in anything, he was perfect as far as the Jewish law was concerned. He was a fine man, doing remarkably well, except for the fact that he was free in regard to righteousness. He was a slave of sin, free in regard to righteousness. But then something happened to him. The power of God happened to him. He describes his change like this. Remember we talked last week about the phenomenal change that must take place. Paul was a fine man doing some fine things for some fine people, at least in the eyes of men. Okay, we get that? Philippians 3, 7, and 8, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's definition of all those who believe that there can be such a thing as righteous actions apart from Jesus Christ. He uses the word rubbish trash or dung, depending on which translation of the Bible you use. He uses all of those terms. Garbage. Uh, Jesus himself referred to them as those who justify themselves before men. 
these Pharisees that thought that they could attain righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus continues. He says, God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. All of their goodness and all of their morality is an abomination. It stinks in the nostrils of Almighty God. Again, who is he talking to here? Well, in our scripture, he's referring to the Roman Christians, but it's also referring to us as well because he's talking to the people that what it looked like before we were saved, okay? You, me, everyone who was once a slave of sin, everyone who is still yet a slave of sin prior to Jesus Christ. Now, I wish we could all wrap our minds around this with regards to ourselves, and then maybe we could see the urgency of the need for the gospel in the lives of those fine people that we've been talking about. Those fine people in our families and in our workplaces and the people that are all around us every day. Sometimes we fail to share the gospel with them because, well, they're good, decent people. Understand how that works? Giving them a pass because they're good, decent people. We don't need to really, really witness to them. Let's go find somebody really nasty to witness to. Okay? They're all really nasty. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all really nasty. That's what this whole thing tells us right here. Um, prior to Jesus Christ, the very best thing that any of us ever did, the very best thing that any of us ever did was an abomination in the eyes of God. The very best thing that those fine people that you know have ever done is an abomination in the sight of God. Says we used to be free from righteousness. Those lost people are still free from righteousness. They have none. The difference between us and them is the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that saved us. That's the only thing that's going to save them. Real trouble with such as we were is that we had no true concept of what righteousness was. Righteousness means to be servants or slaves to God. Any act not done in service to God is unrighteousness. Simple as that. Good moral people have no concept of that. They're just living up to their own standard. They decide on the standard, and then they live up to it and judge everyone else accordingly. Remember the song used to be out, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything? Okay, so everybody just makes up their own thing that they got to stand for. Instead of looking at this book, which tells us what we got to stand for, all right? Um, they're not righteous. They are strangers to righteousness. The Bible gives us a very simple way of proving that such a man is a complete stranger to righteousness. Um, the biblical acid test, as it were, is this says, a man who knows anything at all about righteousness is a man who is acutely and intimately aware of his own unworthiness. Aware of his own lack and aware of his own need. That is how we determine who understands what righteousness is when we understand that we don't have any. Um, slaves to sin are not like that. They're very satisfied with themselves. They sound something like this. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Y'all know the story. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's about humility. So Paul tells us this truth about ourselves. At the same time, he is saying to these Roman Christians, he says, remember back, y'all remember back when you were slaves to sin. Do you remember how pathetically unrighteous you really were? Do you remember that every breath you drew was an abomination in the sight of God? If that was not enough, he continues with a fruit inspection. That's what a preacher I used to listen to used to call it. He said, you don't judge people, you do fruit inspection. (laughs) Paul's doing a little fruit inspection here. He says, what kind of life is lived by people who are free from righteousness? These people who are free from righteousness, what kind of life do they live? Well, Paul shows, shows us three things that are just as true now as they were then regarding the life of a non-Christian. First and foremost is it is a fruitless life. What fruit were you getting in that old life that you thought was so grand? It is an utterly unfruitful life, an utterly profitless life. There is no value in that life, none. That is what the Bible has to say about the non-Christian life from beginning to end. It has no value. What indeed does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And the answer to that question is what? Nothing. It's a value, it's a fruitless life, all right? Or Solomon said, All the works of my hands, all of my labors, all of it was vanity, and there was no profit under the sun. It was wasted time. Okay, Wisdom, knowledge, pleasure, palaces, architecture, art, power. Solomon tried it all a thousand times over because he had untold wealth milked from the people with which to do it. And still, his summation of it all was, there is no profit. It was a waste. It was vanity. As Paul asks here, he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from those things? Okay. These Roman Christians at that time, that's what he's talking about. You at that time. What about for us at this time? Is this still applicable? What are the tests that one applies to determine if life is profitable or fruitful? The test is not pleasure or happiness. That's all you see on television is, we just want you to be happy. That's not not it. That's not the point. That's not the the answer to the test, okay? Um, There's no doubt that a life of sin can give pleasure up to a point. Otherwise, people would not indulge themselves in it. If there was no pleasure there, people wouldn't do it, now would they? Wouldn't think so anyway. And it can also give them a kind of happiness. The world believes, the world around you believes that it's having a good time. But according to Hebrews 11, this pleasure and happiness is only for a season. It does not continue. So being temporary... Pleasure and happiness are not fit measures of the profit in a life of sin. The real test of the profit of the value of a lifestyle is to be found in satisfaction. All of us are faced with two calls, the call of the world and the call of Christianity. The question is, which one of those is more profitable, is more satisfying? The valid test is, does the call... Satisfy the mind, satisfy the heart, and satisfy the spirit. Augustine says that thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Now somebody years later took this and says that you're born with a God-sized hole in your heart that only he can fill. Okay. Um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And, Apart from God, there is no rest to be found. There is no rest to be found in the worldly life. Just dissatisfaction and restlessness, moving from one thing to another and never satisfied. 
running from one form of sin to another in search of the latest thing or some new excitement. Fornication was not enough, so adultery came in. Uh, then homosexuality, then the alphabet mafia, and now the gender confusion that is bringing forth the fruit that was initially sown by fornication. Okay? One man and one woman for life is the biblical teaching. One man and one woman for life will never satisfy the insatiable appetites of those that are enslaved to sin. There always has to be something else. Another test of the profit of the value of a life can be expressed in a series of questions. Those things that you're spending your time on, is there anything upbuilding in it? Does it give substance and sustenance? Does it help me to grow? Does it help me to develop my faculties? Does it exercise my mind and my understanding? Does it move my heart? Does it give me something to do that is of real value? Does it build me up? Is it edifying? As soon as we ask those questions, every Christian knows the answer immediately. There is nothing edifying in a life lived outside of God and outside of Christ. Paul's simple answer is that there is no good fruit to be found in a non-Christian life. After all the expenditure of time and money and energy, what does the non-Christian life really give or have to offer? The answer is nothing. So the way to test it, to imagine what your position would be if you were suddenly cut off from all of your worldly things. Pleasure and entertainment and alcohol and drugs and money and whatever. All those things that are so important to the world. Every TV show, every song, every commercial about pleasure and entertainment and alcohol and drugs and money and sex and whatever it is. It's all the that's what the overwhelming majority of the world lives for. If you take any of those things away, what do they have left? It's like when Wall Street crashed in the Great Depression. All the money was gone. What did the people do? They jumped out the windows because they had nothing left to live for. A worldly life. Chasing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. It's pointless. It has, it has no value. It has no substance. That is where we were. That is where all of us were before Jesus Christ, whether we want to admit it or not. Paul says that everybody who is not a Christian, that's where you are. And if you are a Christian, that's where you used to be. Slaves of the world and the flesh and the devil and living a life of fruitlessness. So that is his first descriptor. It's fruitless. Second statement is that, is that such a life is a life of shame. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Not much need to spend a lot of time on this because we are all well aware of what is going on all around us every day. Things that the scripture refers to as deeds done in darkness, done under the cover of night and darkness, afraid of the light. All of the deceit that is involved in that. The lying, the unhappiness that is produced, the shame of evil thoughts. Adultery is the cornerstone plot of the vast majority of the movies. So it is estimated that over 70% of men and almost 50% of women view pornography on a regular basis. The number one export of America to the rest of the world, you can look this up, is pornography. America sells pornography to the rest of the world. That is our number one export. Shameful. Shameful thing that men and women cannot be happy until they have more or less reduced themselves to the level of an animal. Shameful the many ways that the body is being misused and perverted and defiled. These are the very things that Paul was talking about all the way back in chapter 1. Okay? All you have to do is take a peek at the upcoming TV shows or movies that are coming out, and it's all right there. 
going to list a few of the movies as examples, but after reading the captions, I decided I didn't want to read them anymore, much less talk about them in public. Okay? So we're not going to go there. There's something about this kind of life that brings with it a sense of shame, that should bring with it a sense of shame. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So the point Paul is making here, here is, he says, they're ashamed now. All right? They were not ashamed then. There's a thing within us called remorse that is a gift from the Holy Spirit, our conscience, if you will. Paul is referring to those that have lost that sense of remorse. These pagan Gentiles had sunk so low in sin that they had lost their very sense of shame. Jeremiah says they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Anybody heard that word lately, blush? Nothing worse than that. They had reached a stage where they could no longer blush at their actions. There is hope for men and women as long as they can still blush. Once they have passed that point, they have reached the very depths of iniquity. And once they have reached the very depths of iniquity, they can now, they're now free to run for public office. Might have been joking about that. Maybe not. Anyway, one of the most appalling things that we are witnessing at the present time is that sense of decency and shame is disappearing in men and women and those that are something in between what they are, do not seem to recognize any moral standard at all, as used to be true of you and me. That is where we were. Paul says, now that you look back, now that you look back on that, you are ashamed. You should be ashamed. I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say that if you are not ashamed of what you look back at, then must have led a very privileged and sheltered life because um, things that I look back at are not pleasant at all. Okay? So you can look back on that life and you are not ashamed. It's possible that you were never truly saved because otherwise you would know just how disgusting you really The end result of those things is death. All that freedom from righteousness, all those things you did of which you are now ashamed, all of your life that was spent enslaved to sin, he says the end of those things is death. Now, we've looked at this many times, so we're just going to summarize it here. Death for certain means physical death, all right? Sin always leads to physical death. But not, not only that, it includes what? Spiritual, spiritual death, all right? But not only that, it really means separation from the life of God in every way. Dead to God, dead in trespasses and sins. Separation from God is what chiefly matters. A life of sin will finally and ultimately lead to an everlasting separation from God. There is nothing more terrible or more horrible than that. All of eternity, outside the life of God, everlasting destruction. That is the argument. That is our argument for holy living. This is the way that you mortify sin. You have to say, you have to look at that sin you have to say, no, I cannot possibly do that. If I do that, I'm going back to where I was. I hate that fruitless life. I hate that shameful life. I hate that life that leads to death. I can never go back there. There is nothing here about just let go and let God. Okay, That's a common phrase that you, Dave and I were talking about it last week common phrase. Just let go and let God. Let him take care of all of it. We have a command here. Okay? To stand up and fight. The command is to do something. To fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. How can I continue in sin when it is a life of shame and ugliness and foulness? How could I ever continue in that? 
when it is a life that is utterly fruitless and meaningless? How can I continue in sin when I know it always leads to death? So what should I do? Verse 22. But now, but now, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Have any idea how many but nows are in this chapter? He says, you used to be this, but now you are that. Okay, you used to be that, but now you're this. Paul's continual and repetitive reminder of our position in Christ. Okay? Going all the way back to verse 11, he says, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but now alive to God. Okay? As we've stated many times, you cannot have one without the other. You used to be under the law, but now you are under grace. You used to be enslaved to sin, but now you are enslaved to righteousness. You used to be enslaved to sin, but now you are enslaved to obedience. You used to present your members as slaves to impurity, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness. You used to be a child of the devil, but now you are a child of God. Your end used to be death. Now your end is eternal life. Actually, it goes all the way back to chapter 5, which started all of this. He says, you used to be in Adam, but now you are in Christ. All of these but nows are because of our position in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have undergone a profound change. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time? The at that time is what it was before. The fruit from that time before. That fruit has now become the but now. The what was then, was then, and the what is now. Only a Christian can talk about the then and now because only Christ can change a person. This is essential Christianity. Christianity must have a then and a now or else it is not Christianity. It doesn't work that way, okay? Christianity must have a then and a now or else it is not Christianity. You were that, but now you are this. What fruit were you getting then versus the fruit that you are getting now? You used to get that fruit, but now you are getting this fruit. It's complete transformation. It says you were slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to God. It's total and complete transform transformation. But now. This is without a doubt the good news of the gospel. The but now is what makes us a Christian. We can say it. We can appreciate it. Nobody but a Christian can ever say, but now. The life of the other man is always the same. There is no difference. There is no change. He can change his addictions, change his pleasures, change his companions. But his life is the same through it all. Christian's life by its very nature is not the same at all. He has left his old life and he now has one that is entirely new and quite different. That's the difference that the incarnation, incarnation has made. That's the difference that, difference that his glorious work has made. Not only does he divide time into B.C. and A.D., hear things about what I used to be and they're like I don't see that I said that's because it was BC it was before Christ okay I hope you all have a before Christ right that BC and that and that AD are also uh, turned into a then and now into a were and a are and an are he makes all things new 
Do we rejoice? Do we rejoice truly in the but now? There's so few of us that rejoice in the but now because we have watered down the you were. I wasn't really that bad. Get that? God grants us the grace to see and to understand what we were so that we can fully and truthfully rejoice in the but now. did this already, but we're going to do it again. That is to emphasize the completeness of the change. This is not a slight modification. This is not a slight alteration. This is not a just you, only better. Okay? Nothing is the same. Then and now are complete contrasts. Christians and non-Christians have zero in common. There are no yard lines between the two positions to tell us how far you must go before you make it to that goal. You are either a Christian or you are not. The difference between then and now is absolute. This is Paul's whole point and the very epicenter of his argument. That is where his reasoning stems from. He says, realize what you are. Okay, over and over and over, he's telling us the same thing. Realize what you are. You are no longer that. You are something quite different. Therefore, you cannot go on living as you lived before. That is the essence of his entire argument. Because of what you are, cannot go on living as you once did. The next thing is that it is something that is done to us, something that happens to us. We did not decide to change. We do not decide to change. Jeremiah says that can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? Okay. The whole point is, is that this happened to you. You have been freed from sin, and you have been enslaved to God. This is all something that has been done to us. He has quickened us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It is the work of God and God alone that freed us and enslaved us to God. We are born again. We cannot give birth to ourselves. We are born of God. Washer says, how much effort did you put into your first birth? The same amount you put into your second birth, which is nothing. Okay. So now, what is the nature of this profound change? He says, we have been freed from sin. How many times has Paul said this same thing in this chapter? Why so many times saying the same thing? Freed from sin, freed from sin, freed from sin. Because this is the truth that sets us free. Remember that this is something that is already true of us. Paul is not saying that if we do certain things, we shall eventually be set free. He doesn't say that. He says this has already happened to us, and it is already true of us. The whole argument in this chapter is that you cannot be a Christian at all if this is not true of you. Christians have been freed from sin. Christian is one who is in Christ, and because he is in Christ, he has died with him. He has been buried with him, he has risen with him, and he is alive unto God in him. Taking us back again and again to the question in verse 2, how can we that died to sin continue to live in it? The key to understanding anything said in this sixth chapter is found in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, so that, As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The entirety of this chapter is a commentary on that one verse. Being dead to sin, freed from sin, no longer under the rule and tyranny of sin, entirely set free in Jesus Christ. As we've stated, this does not mean sinless perfection. This does not mean that we will not have to continually wage war against the sin that still exists in us. 
If we are not diligent and on guard, that sin will reign in our mortal bodies. Give it an inch and it will take a mile. That is why we are told we are not to yield, not to allow it to happen, knowing that we are eternally delivered already. I am as much saved this morning as I shall be the day I walk into heaven. But until that time, my body is still the body of my humiliation. It's still my sinful body. Not yet the glorified body that we long for. The one that we are waiting for to come. So we have to be clear about this. Sin in the Christian is no longer our master. It is just a nuisance. It is an annoyance. The non-Christian sin has been and is still master and Lord and will remain so. But not so for us. For the non-Christian, they are pinned and in a submission hold to sin. They cannot live or move, move or breathe apart from their sin. But for us, and I mean this in no way sacrilegiously, for us as a Christian, sin is like a fly buzzing That's how much control that it has over us. Okay? It's a nuisance. It's an annoyance that is constantly there. Whereas before we were helpless before it. Now it has no power at, over, at all over us unless we give it power. Any Christian who sins is a fool, as we've said over and over. When he sins, it is because he has been foolish enough to listen to a voice that he does not need to listen to at all. While we are, remember the kids used to sing, be careful little feet where you go, be careful little hands what you do, be careful little eyes what you see, okay? Because that's how you feed that sin. That's how you give it the power fall to it, it's probably because you put yourself in a place you shouldn't have been. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We are in the kingdom of God's dear Son. All the devil can do is shout at us from across the road. Why are we even listening to him, much less taking his advice about things? He can shout at us, he can frighten us, he can lure us, he can entice us, but he cannot touch us. He is not allowed to touch us. So no, Cliff Wilson, the devil did not make you do it. You did it because you wanted to. Okay? That's how that works. You did it because you wanted to do it. And that is the most liberating thought of them all. The enemy cannot touch you because we belong to another kingdom. Galatians 5 and 1, he says, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, same, same thing. You've been set free from sin. Now you have a command. Stand firmly, therefore. Stand firm. As a Christian, you can stand firm. You must stand firm. You are free to stand firm. Now that you have been set free from sin, what is it that must always come next? We're not, it doesn't stop at being set free from sin. What is it that comes next? You can't have one without the other. It says you have become slaves to who? God. To God. So if you notice the steps, yes, righteousness. Absolutely righteousness. Notice the steps, though, that Paul has taken here. Verse 16, he says, You are slaves of the one who you, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Then in verse 17, he says, Once, once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. So it's slaves first to obedience, then slaves to the standard of teaching. And then in verse 18 and 19, he says, Slaves to righteousness, step by step. Obedience, standard of teaching, righteousness, and then we arrive at the top of the mountain. We have reached the top. Not obedience only, not doctrine only, 
Uh, righteousness only, wonderful as all of those are. The real truth about a Christian is that, is that he is a slave to God. From this enslavement comes our holiness and our sanctification. This enslavement tells us that we have no right to live to ourselves. Can we do so? Yeah, we can live to ourselves, but we don't have a right to do that. We have no right to please ourselves apart from pleasing God. Can we do so? Yes, we can, but we don't have a right to do that. We have no right to sin. Can we still do that? Yes, we can, but we don't have a right to that. Because we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We have no right to sin. Our master disapproves. He hates it. A Christian in sin is like a man in the army fraternizing with the enemy. We have no right to do such a thing. We are slaves of God. We are meant to serve him. Our chief end is to glorify him. We have no right to do otherwise. The first and great commandment is a totalitarian command. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All. All that you are. Okay? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That just means all of yourself, okay? It's a totalitarian command. Not with just some of yourself, not with the little bit that you have left over after you've done all of this other stuff you wanted to do. Paul. We are to absolute to be absolutely his and to live for him fully and completely. That is the definition of holiness and sanctification. Which we will continue on with next on next week and finish chapter six, Lord willing. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the work that